everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 11, The Enemy in Africa. Last time, we left off with the Carthaginians defeating Agathocles and his Syracusans at the Battle of the River Hamira. Although he managed to delay the Carthaginian advance long enough to allow the Syracusans to harvest their crops, Agathocles had been forced to retreat back to Syracuse soon after the battle. In the meantime, nearly all of the other Sicilian cities had gone over to the Carthaginians under Hamilcar Gizgo, who rewarded them generously. Now, the Carthaginian army and navy sat encamped outside Syracuse, determined to put an end to the threat of Agathocles once and for all. Today, we will see how Agathocles proved that you should never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Indeed, Agathocles placed Carthage on the back foot with a move of such stunning desperation that it took the Carthaginians completely by surprise. Since this episode will likely involve discussing several locations in Sicily and North Africa, I'd recommend you pull out your trusty map if you have a chance so you can follow along. As we saw last time in his delayed retreat to Syracuse, Agathocles did not lack either daring in his plans or courage in executing them. Even so, his course of action following his return to Syracuse bordered on extreme recklessness rather than boldness. With a mighty army of Carthaginians at his gates, Agathocles determined to leave Syracuse and counter-invade Africa in an attack on Carthage's home soil. Such a move carried almost incalculable risk. First, Agathocles would have to recruit and equip an expeditionary army in secret within a city completely encircled by enemies before running the gauntlet of the Carthaginian fleet while his own fleet was in shambles. Even if he made it to North Africa, he would have to maintain himself in a foreign and hostile territory while avoiding defeat from Carthage's vastly superior manpower. During all this, he needed to keep a firm hand in Syracuse to discourage any potential coups from his political rivals all while he left the city garrison dangerously weakened by what must have seen to many citizens to be a mad frolic. But perhaps in Agathocles' mind, over all these concerns loomed the very real possibility that Agathocles, the potter's son who had finally obtained supreme power, would watch in humiliation as his failed ambitions sank to the bottom of the harbor while the Carthaginian invaders overran the critically weakened garrison and sacked the proudest city of the Western Greeks. Even so, the plan had its merits. As shown by his dealings with the Carthaginian army in Sicily, Agathocles had a keen understanding of the Carthaginians and their way of life. He knew that, besides the elite unit of the Sacred Band, and the Corps of Officers, few Carthaginians had any experience in warfare, and fewer still served in the regular army. 
For nearly 200 years, the land surrounding Carthage had enjoyed relatively peaceful times, and the inhabitants were wealthy and prosperous due to the trade and industry this peace fostered. This long peace also likely meant that there would be no troops stationed near the Carthaginian heartland, since the Carthaginians would be confident that their navy could defeat any invader before he set foot in Africa. Besides these considerations, there was a strong possibility that the local Libyan and Numidian tribes, discontented from the heavy tributes imposed on them by their Carthaginian masters, would rise in revolt to support an invading foreign army. Despite all these potential benefits, an invasion into the heartland of one of the most powerful and prosperous of the Mediterranean states would have been a daunting prospect under normal circumstances, but to attempt it now, in the middle of a siege, after a devastating defeat, must have seemed like madness. Yet, such startling and seemingly suicidal expeditions had paid dividends within recent memory. In conceiving of his bold gamble, Agathocles must surely have been reminded of the unexpected and total victory of Alexander the Great over the Persians a mere twenty years before, when a Greek army invaded the home soil of a foreign empire and thus formed the greatest realm Greece would ever know. Agathocles notoriously craved to identify himself with the great Macedonian. Was this not the chance to prove himself every bit as worthy a successor to Alexander as the other generals in the east? Whether or not this invasion was a stroke of extreme brilliance or extreme desperation, once he set his mind to it, Agathocles lost no time in methodically preparing his forces. Telling no one but his brother Antander of his intentions, Agathocles enrolled mercenaries, Syracusan levies, and even slaves to fill the ranks of his expeditionary force. Though he had no means of transporting horses over the sea, he ordered his cavalrymen to carry bridles and saddles anyway, with the optimistic hope that they would find enough horses in Africa to mount a division. Fearing the machinations of the powerful families he would leave behind, Agathocles carefully took hostages from each, enrolling one brother in the expeditionary army which would accompany him, while placing another in the garrison under his brother Antander, counting on this ingenious tactic to ensure the loyalty of any families whose enthusiasm might be less than exemplary. He also desperately needed cash to fund his troops. Unscrupulous and unprincipled as ever, Agathocles obtained the funds he needed in a variety of creative and unsavory ways. Orphans' inheritances were plundered, women were stripped of their jewels, merchants forced to give compulsory loans, and even temple offerings were confiscated from the altars. These actions understandably upset the wealthier class of Syracusans many of whom already held private grudges against Agathocles for his past cruelties. Aware of this aristocratic outrage, Agathocles summoned the people to the popular assembly 
and informed them that any who wished to leave the city with their property, before the siege became serious, had his permission and blessing to leave. As he predicted, many of his wealthier enemies jumped at the chance and left the city with their movable goods. From what you know of Agathocles by now, I'm sure you can guess where this is headed. No sooner had the nobles got clear of the walls when Agathocles dispatched a group of mercenaries after them who cheerfully murdered the whole lot and stole their property. Not content with stopping here, Agathocles then freed the murdered noble's slaves and enlisted them in his army. Despite his disreputable methods, Agathocles at last managed to scrounge together a motley army of 13,500 men made up of native Syracusans, Greeks, Etruscans, Samnites, and Gauls, along with 60 triremes. This feat is all the more impressive considering that Agathocles had contrived to keep the whole operation secret from not only the Carthaginians, but also the citizens of Syracuse. As they watched the troops manning the ships, the Syracusans had no idea where Agathocles was off to, but they bitterly cried out against him for abandoning them to the mercy of the Carthaginians. For all his boldness, Agathocles himself nearly despaired when he saw the Carthaginian fleet drawn up outside the harbor, and he wondered how he would bypass the blockade and reach the open sea. But, as fortune would have it, just at this moment a convoy of grain ships destined for Syracuse appeared over the horizon. The Carthaginians, eager to capture what they considered an easy prize, broke formation to pursue the cargo ships. Seizing his chance, Agathocles cut the cables to his own ships and sailed boldly out of the harbor. Ignorant of the Syracusans' real designs, the Carthaginian admiral thought Agathocles was sailing out to protect the grain ships, so he formed his own ships into battle lines. Agathocles, however, sailed right past the Carthaginians while they were busy getting organized, and by the time the admiral realized his error, the Syracusans had gained a substantial head start. To add insult to injury, the grain ships had also made it into the city by this time, relieving the citizens of the hunger that was already gripping them. In another one of those fascinating anecdotes of history, Diodorus records that the day after this escape, a solar eclipse occurred, which allows us to pinpoint the date of Agathocles' expedition to August 15, 310 BC. Having recently observed an eclipse myself here in the States, I can understand why Agathocles' men took it as an ominous sign for their expedition. Now, a furious chase ensued between the Carthaginians and the Greeks. If caught, odds were that the Syracusan fleet would be decimated by the superior Carthaginians, so the oarsmen strained their nerves to the utmost while the captains looked eagerly for the coast of Africa. On the sixth day after departing Syracuse, the Greeks spied the Capbon Peninsula, 
with the Carthaginians hot on their trail. The race became even more intense, the Carthaginians encouraging their men that once they caught the Greeks, Syracuse was theirs and Carthage safe, while the Greeks, fearing punishment and slavery if they failed to reach the beach, rode with the strength of desperation. Diodorus reports that the Carthaginians came so close to the rear guard of the Greek ships that they fired arrows and stones at them and even managed to engage in close quarters with a few. However, Agathocles beat them off with his heavily armored troops, and the Greeks arrived on the beaches of Cap Bon, making Agathocles the first European to ever invade North Africa. Having reached the shores of North Africa in safety, Agathocles, wishing to show his men that there was no going back now, took the extreme step of burning his ships, effectively marooning himself in Carthaginian territory. Though his troops' spirits were likely not improved by this act, they quickly brightened up once they saw the wealth and luxury which surrounded them. As we remember from episode 4, the Cap Bon Peninsula contained the estates and gardens of the wealthiest of the Carthaginian nobility. Acres of vineyards, olive groves, fruit orchards, and pastures filled with horses, sheep, and cattle met the Greeks' eyes as they stared across the plain, showing an unrivaled prosperity that they had likely never seen in war-torn Sicily. Inspired by thoughts of plunder, the troops easily captured and sacked the cities of Megalopolis and White Tunis, the latter of which was only a few miles from Carthage herself. In Carthage, news of Agathocles' unexpected arrival, which had been brought in by peasants fleeing the countryside, caused consternation in the city. Panic ensued as rumors spread like wildfire among the citizens that their entire army in Sicily had been destroyed, for under no other circumstances could they conceive that Agathocles would have been able to cross the sea. Totally unprepared for war in their homeland, the citizens rushed into the marketplace with great weeping and despair, while the council of elders hurriedly convened to decide how to proceed. Here, some insisted that they must immediately sue for peace with Agathocles, since obviously their armies in Sicily were lost, while others stated that they should send spies among the Greeks to watch their movements. The more cool-headed advised that they should wait until definite news reached them regarding the fate of the army in Sicily. While this debate was still raging, messengers arrived from the Carthaginian fleet informing the council of the situation. Rebuking the commanders of the fleet for their negligence in allowing Agathocles to slip by them, the council set to work enrolling the population into the army. An army almost fully manned by Carthaginian citizens had not taken the field in centuries, and this almost unprecedented step showed the gravity of the situation. Despite this, the leaders inexplicably failed to wait for Allied troops to come up from the border with Libya, and the Carthaginians further blundered by appointing two feuding rivals who hated each other 
Hanno and Bulmacar as co-commanders of the army. Nonetheless, the Carthaginians succeeded in placing a force of 40,000 foot soldiers, 1,000 horsemen, and 2,000 chariots in the field to confront Agathocles. Confident that their superior numbers could overwhelm the Greek invaders, the generals gave battle to Agathocles at White Tunis. Although bolstered by the plunder from Cap Bon, Agathocles knew his situation was desperate. Many of his men had inadequate equipment, and the rowers from the fleet were totally unarmed. To give the illusion that he had more men than he did, Agathocles ordered the rowers to stretch cloth covers over sticks to mimic shields at a distance. Seeing his troops' morale waver in the face of the Carthaginian advance, he released tame owls among them. Considered sacred to Athena, goddess of victory, owls symbolized a good omen, and when the men saw these birds settling on their shields and spears, they took heart and prepared for battle. On the Carthaginian side, Hanno commanded the right wing, the place of honor, along with the sacred band, while Bulmacar drew his men up in a deep phalanx on the left wing, since the land gave him little room to maneuver. They placed the cavalry and chariots in front, intending that these should lead the first assault. Though they charged valiantly into the Greek position, the cavalry and chariots were forced to retreat in disorder back through their own infantry after a brief conflict, many of the riders having been shot or dragged off their steeds by the Greek phalanx. Undeterred by the defeat of their cavalry, the Carthaginians poured onwards, and in the words of Diodorus, a gallant battle developed. Leading the right wing with the picked troops of the sacred band, the Carthaginian general Hanno fought like a lion, personally cutting down many Greeks as he and his men pressed forwards. Yet, he pushed forward too far, and wounded by many missiles, he died of exhaustion and blood loss soon after. His death dismayed the Carthaginians, who now began to give way before the Greeks. When Bulmacar learned of his rival's death, he ordered a general retreat. Diodorus accuses Bulmacar of opportunistically seeking to turn this defeat to his advantage by seizing power in Carthage, but it is uncertain whether this was truly the case. Regardless, the Carthaginians fled in a rout, leaving 3,000 dead behind. Carthaginian casualties were likely mitigated by the heroic actions of the sacred band. Like their forebears at the Battle of Cremissus, the sacred band stood firm until the end, stepping backwards over the bodies of their fallen comrades, contesting every inch of ground against the victorious Greeks. But at last, even they were forced to retreat. Although likely a unit of Carthaginian noblemen served in the wars following the Battle of White Tunis, the sacred band was never mentioned again following this defeat. Perhaps the unit was effectively destroyed at White Tunis, 
Perhaps the Carthaginians did not wish to tempt fate a third time by calling their elite citizen unit the Sacred Band. Regardless, they would never be seen again. Diodorus also recounts that the Greeks found 20,000 manacles in the Carthaginian camp after the battle, since the Carthaginians had been intent on enslaving the Greeks taken alive, although this seems like an exaggeration. As their defeated army streamed into the city and they learned of the defeat at White Tunis, the Carthaginians were seized with a general hysteria. In frantic attempts to appease the gods, the Carthaginians sent a large gift of money to the temple of Melkart in Tyre, newly rebuilt after Alexander's destruction of the city, to make up for the lackluster ties of previous years. To appease Baal Hamon, who was supposedly offended due to the mediocre quality of recent child sacrifices of the city, the Carthaginians turned again to remedy their grisly practice. Discovering that some noble families had secretly saved their own children by purchasing slave children as substitute sacrifices, the Carthaginian authorities seized 200 noble children, who would likely have been several years old by this point, to be publicly given to the fiery bronze hands of the altar. Three hundred other children were voluntarily surrendered by parents who were suspected of substituting slave children, and new temples were dedicated to Tanit and Astart and decorated with lavish furnishings. Now an awkward situation ensued where both Syracuse and Carthage had an army threatening the others' home city. Agathocles, knowing his forces to be insufficient to storm the formidable defenses of Carthage, roamed around the countryside, pillaging at will. He also dispatched messengers to the local Libyan and Numidian tribes, inviting them to join him. Carthage, meanwhile, sent messengers to Hamilcar Gizgo, requesting reinforcements to protect the city from Agathocles and his marauders. Stuck in a bizarre stalemate, while each watched the other threaten their lands, Carthage and Syracuse had reached deadlock. Next time, we will see how this standstill was broken by violent political upheavals within the streets of Carthage herself. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing or leaving a review. It really helps the podcast grow. Also, if you have any friends who love history, make sure to tell them about the layman's historian. Until we meet next time, take care and read more history.